Hey everyone, my name is Mimi Blue and you are listening to Human Dialectic. I hope you are doing well. If you are a returning listener, thank you for your support. If you are a new listener, hi, I hope you're doing well and I hope you end up being another addition to my crew. Anyways, thank you for tuning in and for today's topic, we're going to talk about courage versus fear. I'm trying to figure out why I wanted to talk about this topic, but I think it's always a interesting topic because to hear all of the courageous stories of children saving other children or adults, or even as simple as somebody doing something that seems so far-fetched or impossible, one thing that always crosses my mind, and I'm assuming it does for all of you, is how do I develop the courage to overcome my fears? And none of these stories ever get old, ever. Even if it is so minor, such as getting up in front of a stage of thousands of people and speaking. And trust me, I know there are many people out there who have this fear to speak in front of a a large audience it's, it takes a lot of courage, but it does take practice. And I, even though developing courage requires you to set yourself in that environment and to practice and to reduce that, that fear response or that fight versus flight and know that you are not in a threatful situation, I still think that there are certain traits that you have to carry in order for you to execute courage. And that's what I want to talk about. I I think that every single one of us has the ability to be courageous, but we choose to stick in the fear space. And that's why you get folks who are the, the bystanders. I think it's called the bystander effect, right? When people just watch you, you know, if you're getting robbed or if you're a woman and you're being assaulted, people just watch you. Even worse, they would take a mobile phone and tape you. By the way, I mean, in some cases, it's great that you are recording a crime, but I would really appreciate if you could just help out. But then again, there are some states where if you do try and save somebody, the government will come after you and sue you and not the assaulter. So anyway, totally different topic. Let's get back to this uh, perspective of what does it mean to be courageous or how do you become courageous and what is the difference between courage and fear? Well, I think the great way to segue into that topic is to reference a book called To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, I remember reading this book in the 10th grade. I don't know if any of you have. I know that a lot of these books from the 50s and 60s are now being um, blacklisted and deemed racist in ways that really don't make sense, especially if they are set in a time where we know that that type of environment existed. You cannot just erase history. So I reflect on this book because I do appreciate how it was written, but also there was there were some moral messages in this book that I was not able to interpret when I was in the 10th grade, but I could look back now and see how how paramount that message was and still is to this day. 
So for those of you who are not familiar with To Kill a Mockingbird, let me just give you a quick summary of the plot. To Kill a Mockingbird tells the story of a young narrator's passage from innocence to experience when her father confronts the racist justice system of the rural Depression era South. In witnessing the trial of Tom Robinson, a black man unfairly accused of rape, Scout, the narrator, gains insight into her town, her family, and herself. Several incidents in the novel force Scout to confront her beliefs, most significantly, most significantly when Tom is convicted despite his clear innocence. Scout faces her own prejudices through her encounters with Boo Radley, a mysteriously shut-in whom Scout initially considers a frightening ghost-like creature. The novel's resolution comes when Boo rescues Scout and her brother, and Scout realizes Boo is a fully human, noble being. At the same time, Scout undergoes an inevitable disillusionment as she is exposed to the reality of human nature. The entrenched racism of her town, the unfair conviction and murder of Tom Robinson, and the malice of Bob Owl all force Scout to acknowledge social inequality and the darker aspects of humanity. Throughout the book, her father, Atticus, represents morality and justice, but as Scout becomes more sensitive to those around her, she sees the effect of his struggle to stay purely good in a compromised world. So that's the plot. And of course, there are some primary topics you could take away from this book, which is the racism, the justice system, and so forth. But I do want to highlight two things. One, in that last sentence, it talks about Atticus, her father, who is a respected attorney whose reputation is at stake for standing up for a black man who everyone else thought was guilty. And the other thing is Scout, who I believe she was in her preteens, maybe even younger. She's having to deal with the realities of human nature with these reactions. Like why do humans respond in the way that they do? And one component, of course, is how does someone understand when to take a certain position, especially if it is against the masses or if it's against popular opinion. And that does take courage. And that's one prime example of how how someone can weigh the risks and the benefits or maybe even understand what is morally right and what am I willing to sacrifice versus trying to follow public opinion? And that's just that's one way that courage is um, where that courage emerges. But it sometimes can emerge if there is a threat to another livelihood or um, there is a will to survive. Now, like I said before, I have such an admiration for those who are, are courageous. And I think it comes in many forms, trying to pursue your passions. I know that's something that I try and do every single day. People are very comfortable. And even though they may know that they're not happy, they would rather take the path of least resistance instead of trying to combat those fears or whatever is holding them back and to pursue those particular dreams. So that's one example. Another example is something that you hear all the time where there might be a fire in a building and there's always one or two people in the crowd and they may not be first responders who will do whatever it takes to 
save the innocent lives in a, in a burning building. Or you hear about people who will take a bullet for somebody else. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, these are kind of going more towards the extreme cases, but it is an example where people are beginning to overcome their fear. And if you call it courageous, great. If some people are going to call it stupid, well, is it really stupid if you know that you could do the same thing or you couldn't do the same thing, whichever way you look at it. But um, what pushes people to do that? What pushes people to take that action, especially when the majority of, of human beings will not do it? And trust me, every single one of us, we have it, but it has to be activated. Now, one thing you do need to understand is that we are habitual beings. We thrive on reputation, or I should say repetition, not reputation, repetition. And we generally do not like change. And if something is disruptive, we have a very hard time trying to process that. So imagine if somebody was fired the next day. It can be very jarring and it's it's you don't have enough time to ease into that change. So if you have something disruptive as somebody passing, you know, you don't have the ability to adjust to your environment. You don't have the ability to process what's going on. The action took place and you can't really, you're responding, but you're being reactive. So that's just something to take in mind about us being habitual beings, because when it comes to courage and fear, to develop courage, it does take time. And we are going to talk about certain solutions as to how to be courageous. But the fear response is something that we just are are biologically wired to have. And it's a good thing because when there are real threats, we do need to get out of those situations. But fear is also based on perception, how we perceive a situation or environment and how we all perceive the world slightly differently. Um, this explains why there are certain people who are afraid of different things. So people can be afraid of spiders and some people are not. There might be people who have a fear of flying and then others love it. Um, There's actually a great article where I'm going to talk about biologically why we have fear and why some people have a stronger response than others. And the article is titled The Psychology of Fear by Rich Diveny, D-I-V-I-N-E-Y. And I think this is a great article. He actually served as a a Navy SEAL, and you can imagine the type of training they have to go through. I mean, constant repetition, and you are just amazed as to what environments they're putting themselves into. But he could probably attest, Rich could probably, the author could attest to the fact that he would not have been able to do what he was doing if he had a strong sense of fear. So... As he stated, fear is based on how we perceive a situation or environment, and we all perceive the world slightly differently. This explains why people are afraid of different things. Some people are afraid of spiders, while some are not. Or maybe uh, you have a consuming fear of flying while others love it. Yet fear does not only manifest in your mind. Our bodies react to fear with stress, which comes with distinct physiological responses, Stress begins in your brain when a threat is detected. 
Then your brain sends signals to the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system, in turn, sends neurotransmitters and hormones through the endocrine system, pushing blood to the most necessary organs and muscles. This is why our heart rate increases, we breathe harder, our pupils dilate, and we sweat when stressed. So do these responses sound very, very similar when you're not under true threat. So what I mean is if you are taking a test or if you are going to give a speech uh, to, let's say, a your, your manager or if you're supposed to deliver a presentation. I mean, these are just natural responses. The thing is, we are allowing it to be activated in the wrong environments. So I'm going to go back to the article. While certain functions are stimulated, others are slowing or stopping. Anything that isn't immediately required to respond to the threat, such as nail growth or uh, salivary glands, become less of a priority. This explains why your mouth may feel dry when you are stressed. You don't need saliva when you're fighting, fighting for survival. Once our brain determines a threat and our sympathetic nervous system kicks in, our body gives us three options, fight, flight, or freeze. So I'm actually going to pause there because I'm going to, those are the actual outcomes of fear. So fear happens. What are the outcomes? What are we potentially able to do? So before getting into that, now that you have an understanding as to how fear is activated, there's another thing about emotions that um, is very interesting. And hopefully you're following my, <laughs> my, my thread here, because it seems like I'm I'm going on tangents a little bit, but it's all setting the stage so you understand why some people are courageous and some people kind of, well, I don't want to say flake out, but they don't have that response. There's something called emotional contagion, not the movie contagion, but emotional contagion. So emotions are contagious. Have you ever wondered how we just naturally smile to a stranger when we see them smiling. I mean, one thing we don't like doing is making eye contact with strangers. We just don't like it. And when I started noticing that when I make eye contact with somebody on the street, that person will smile and then I will naturally smile. I didn't understand why that would happen, but it is a human response where Sometimes we just don't want to be in an awkward situation where we make eye contact with somebody and we're not smiling. But it is also contagious because, according to this article, broadly, empathy has been described as the ability to share the experience of others and it has been related to the activation of neural structures and physiological responses. Hence, in the study of empathy, emotional contagion and social interactions seem to be a crucial char characteristic for understanding emotional states. So in summary, so I will translate that for you. We typically observe our environments and we respond in the same manner, especially when it deals with interacting with other human beings. So socially. So you walk into a room and the energy is pretty positive. People are smiling. Well, guess what? It's going to be contagious to you because that environment is very suited for a calming, uh, joyable setting. And so you yourself will actually respond in the same manner. 
just it's is as similar as to the example that I had talked about, about me making eye contact with a stranger and then smiling. I mean, you're just, you're responding naturally to your environment and it's with an emotional state. Now, I do believe one aspect of maintaining courage is the environment that you are in. As Americans or anyone who's in the first world, we've had a very, very good time where a lot of things were convenient for us. You know, you live in the suburbs and there's not a lot of crime. You have access to food in the grocery stores. And the most important thing, especially as Americans, we've never really seen war on our soil in modern day history. I mean, even if you look back to World War One and World War Two, we did not have war here. So what's my point? Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because humans can become very, uh, they can become very lazy. When you don't exercise the idea of, of being courageous and you are pretty, um, you're pretty satisfied and you don't really have to deal with threats. And that's why I was mentioning that our threatening environments are typically when we go to work, when we have something stressful that we need to do. That was not always the case. Of course, that's modern times, but people needed to be courageous because prior to the Industrial Revolution, you were fighting with nature. And you had to know how to respond. So you either were paralyzed in fear or you had to fight whatever was in front of you or you would flee. And we simply do not have the appropriate traits. I mean, it's sad to see some of these videos as as funny as that they may be sometimes. People who are going to get beaten up, they cower and they fall to the ground into fetal position. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, how can you, how could you allow yourself to do that? Especially seeing grown men who should have exhibited strength and they are falling to the ground in fetal position. So that segues into when is fear activated? When we feel that Our environment has been threatened. We feel it, we sense it, and then it's processed in our brains. And it triggers that fear response in the um, amygdala, which then activates fight versus flight uh, or freeze. So we can respond in three different ways. Fighting, so you disarm the threat or uh, display power over it. Fighting by getting away from the threat or I think the worst out of both of those, or all three of these, freeze by freezing, which is suspending action, becoming paralyzed, or going numb in the face of the threat when fight or flight is not possible. I truly believe this happens when we are not able to process what we are seeing. It is so shocking to us that we can't even move. Have I seen that before? I personally have not seen it, but I know that it It has happened to one or two people that I've heard of. Um, 
And that's the worst thing (laughs) is not being able to move. I can't imagine that you are in such fear that you cannot move. So then how do we get out of that state and develop courage? Well, it's actually a process, sort of like a step process. So when you dictate that your environment has a substantial amount of threats (laughs) or a threat, step number one, you have to acknowledge the threat and your vulnerability in the context of that threat. So recognize, let's just take a simple example. You are driving down a block and then you see a fire and the house, there is a house that's on fire. So you have acknowledged that that threat is there and you're vulnerable, right? You could get burnt uh, and you could possibly die. But you recognize that, oh my gosh, there is a house on fire. There could be children or an entire family in that house. Step number two is appraisal. And that means that there is something important at stake, an imperative in that threatening situation, whether it is physical, moral, spiritual, relational, or intellectual. See, this is important. And because I think that a lot of people just stand by and watch others, I mean, that is the destruction of a society and the morality, you know, rather than understanding that we need to help others, people would rather keep a distance and not have any type of emotional response to somebody that they don't know. So that's why it's important when you think of, is something important at stake? If it is another human being, you may not know them, but to be able to step in and know that this is something that is worth saving, that that is, I think that is very, very imperative to that step or several steps to being courageous. Step number three is acceptance. That means that there is a risk that any actions you take to address that imperative threat may fail. That is something you just need to acknowledge. Um, You've acknowledged the threat. You recognize that there's something important at stake. It could be somebody's livelihood, someone's life, someone's child, someone's husband, someone's, you know, brother, sister, whatever it is. Um, Maybe it's a dog too. Maybe it's a pet. Once you've come to acceptance that I may not come out of this alive, but I'm willing to take a risk. The odds may be stacked against me, but I'm going to do it. And then number four is affirm. And in this case, you then engage the threatening situation with an open mind, a willing body, and an engaged spirit. And this doesn't, I mean, these are essentially the, I don't want to call it a checklist, but all of this happens so quickly. And you don't (laughs) literally sit and think about it. Um, But all four of these need to be satisfied. And if one of them fails, then you will never get to a step or at least to that level of, of being courageous. Again, if one of these fails, you're you're not going to move forward. Now, what does that mean to me? I personally believe that you have to have something to believe in. If you don't believe in anything, if you don't have a foundation, what are you willing to sacrifice your life for or to 
uh, take a risk on. You also need to remind yourself that you you have to continuously put yourself in that environment. So it's it's kind of uh, conditioning yourself, getting those motor skills, really understanding what you need to do. This is why you see in law enforcement, you see fire, firefighters, paramedics, doctors, anyone in the healthcare industry, they constantly are doing drills because when the real thing happens, they don't want to get into a state where they freeze. And that, again, is the worst response out of all three of the um, fear responses. And then, of course, it's not guaranteed that you are going to be courageous at every single um, every single moment that you encounter that requires it. I just think it's important to practice the idea of being able to overcome those challenges. So how do you ensure to move from fear to courage? Well, we, we already discussed the necessary steps. And if you fail in one, you're going to fail in all. How many times have you heard that you need to stay calm and you need to breathe? Tell me one time where you've lost your damn mind or somebody else has lost their mind and they were still able to develop a level of courage. (laughs) Probably not. And I do not want to be around people who are losing their freaking mind because, like I said before, the emotional contagion, if one person is fearful, everybody else gets fearful. And then next thing you know, you are in for a disaster. I mentioned you have to have something to believe in and you need to practice, keep practicing. This is not something that you develop overnight. So how do we want to conclude this? Because I'm definitely going to keep utilizing uh, some of this information in my personal life. And of course, when it comes to standing up for certain positions, you should Never feel as if you are alone, even though I think that for a lot of us, we do feel like we are alone, especially if we are battling uh, certain, I don't want to say demons, but just battling certain um, issues, whether socially or personally or professionally, you know, we, we will have the ability to stand up and everybody is going to hear us. So the way that I want to end this episode is by quoting a one of the authors of the articles that I had just read. I think this is amazing and I'm going to end it by saying, while fate is out of our control, the future is our responsibility. Ultimately, our life is up to us. All we have to take with us on earth and to the grave are the choices we make. The question is, when faced with an imperative threat, will you choose to act with courage when you are called? It's up to you. Thanks, everyone. And I will talk to you later.